Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you for reading the scripture for us this morning. Uh, A few things before we jump into the text today. Uh, First of all, be sure to fill out that connect card if you haven't, uh, coahforesthills.org slash connect. Also our values, these are the unchanging aspects of who we are. First of all, the gospel, it's the good news that Jesus gave his life for us. And for us, everything flows out of the hope of Christ that we've been given. Uh, Secondly, community, we believe God created us for relationships centered around him. And so we uh, get together in community groups in order to care for one another and serve one another, as well as mission. We believe the good news of Jesus is something that he's given us to tell other people about and also live lives that are informed by that to see others uh, experience the gospel. A few announcements today. First of all, coming up on uh, March 17th, Wednesday, March 17th at 7.30, we're gonna be doing a Q&A discussion on, the ra- on race, justice, and the gospel. And so maybe you've, been, you've had some questions about how the Bible speaks into these issues, how it speaks into our inherent dignity and our cultural distinctives and expressions, um, or questions about justice. We would love to answer those questions. Uh, all question submissions are private, so you can text those to 617-286-2006. Uh, coming up on on Saturday, March 20th, we're going to be having a prayer walk as it starts to warm up a little bit and we start to get outside a little more. We want to pray over our neighborhood and just for for, the, for God, uh, for his spirit to fall on our neighborhood and to see people's lives changed by the hope of Christ. And then on Sunday, March 21st, we're going to be back together in person, our last monthly service before we start meeting together weekly outside on Easter. And the good news about that monthly service is we get to sing together for the first time. We are very, very excited about that. And you, are not going to want to miss that. And so today we're continuing looking at the life of David. And so David, like us, is a person who is no stranger to broken relationships. David has a myriad of broken relationships throughout his story. And, and we see that some of these, and we'll see this over the next couple of weeks, are of his own making. Some of David's struggles and frustrations are because of his sin and his shortcoming. But also, as we see with Saul, it's the sin and the shortcomings of other people that have caused brokenness in his life. All of us understand what it's like to have strained or fractured relationships with friends or with family. And this happens because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's stained by sin uh, that causes us to be prideful. It causes us to seek uh, our own selfish ambition. It causes us uh, to be jealous of one another. And so David's relationship with Saul is no different than this. David sees his relationship with Saul begin to deteriorate. And if you look a little bit at the background of their relationship, Saul was rejected as king of Israel. And so David steps in as the new anointed king. And you can imagine this creates a very awkward uh, kind of tense relationship between the two. Imagine that you're working a job, you get fired and they make you train your replacement. That's kind of what happens to Saul. He has to uh, see David ascending to the throne as he is being pushed out. And so this causes Saul to be consumed with jealousy. And we see it happen in a story where the people were praising uh, David because Saul had had his thousands that he had killed and David his ten thousands. And so Saul decides that he's going to try to kill David. He he attempts this six times and he drives David into the wilderness, uh, into hiding. 
Saul is hotly pursuing him. Even though Saul is the one who's the offender, he is the one who is going after David. And David, we see on multiple occasions, extends mercy to Saul. He shows Saul mercy. And as we see this broken relationship, if there's any hope of a broken relationship being put back together, it takes two things. It takes repentance on the part of one person, or maybe even both, and also mercy. Repentance and mercy. And this is not the first time that David and Saul have had this issue. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we see a very similar situation happen where David is hiding in a cave and Saul and his army are trying to find him. And Saul ends up wandering into that very same cave where David is hiding at the back. And the Bible says he is there to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom. And so David has the golden opportunity to kill him, but doesn't do so. He shows him mercy. He cuts off a corner of Saul's robe And this causes Saul for just a moment to feel sorry and even admit that David is a better man than him and also that David is eventually going to be the king. We see that this mercy, this this turning, this repentance on the part of Saul is short-lived. And and what happens when we have a relationship with someone where where it seems like we're constantly having to show mercy, we're constantly having to forgive sin, we're constantly having to address hurts that happen over and over and over again is that they're really hurtful. Saul here in 1 Samuel 26 is again pursuing David. And David, we see him again having the opportunity to end it, to finally put this thing to rest, but he doesn't. He shows mercy again. Why does David show such mercy? Because God shows mercy. In the same way, God shows mercy. And David, as the Bible describes him, is a man after God's own heart. In other words, his character is meant to be reflected in the way that he lives in showing mercy. There's a call here for us too, that to be like God is to be merciful. And so the big idea that we're gonna unpack today is that a merciful life glorifies a merciful God. A, A merciful life glorifies a merciful God. So what does the story of David tell us about mercy? Well, it tells us four things. First of all, what mercy is. Secondly, what mercy allows. Then what mercy hopes for. And lastly, what mercy or where mercy comes from. So let's first look at what mercy is. What is mercy? Very simply, mercy is not receiving punishment that you deserve. It's not receiving the just consequences of your actions Of God's mercy, Tony Evans says that mercy is God's loving response when we ask him not to let us bear the full weight of our burdens, to not bear the full consequences of our sins. And in 1 Samuel 26, we see this. David demonstrates undeserved mercy to Saul. In verses one through three, Saul gets some intel from the Ziphites who were allies of his about David and his location. And he goes down with his troops. First Samuel 24 tells us that there were about 3,000 of those troops who go with Saul um, and they find a strategic location there on the hillside of Hakalah um, to provide, and it, what happens is it provides protection. So if you've ever, if you think about strategically a place you'd wanna be, you wanna cover one side. They wanna put their back up against the hill. So if you've ever played the game Risk, the board game, just start in Australia because there's nothing on your back. You're going to win the game. That's exactly what Saul is attempting to do. Well, in verses four through five, David spies, he sends his spies in and they discover Saul's plan. 
They, they find Saul's encampment. They see that he's very well protected, these 3,000 troops. And also we see that Saul's trusted commander, Abner, is there with him. And so what Saul has done is he's placed himself in the middle of this encampment, completely protected with his army around him. And what's interesting about Saul is that Saul is the one in the wrong, yet he's the one who's attempting to protect himself. You would imagine David would would want to be the one who's encamped in the middle of a bunch of people around him to protect him. But what often happens, and this is how you and I respond in our sin, is that when we're wrong, we tend to put up all sorts of protections and all sorts of barriers around ourselves to keep us from having to deal with our problems and keep us from having to face the people that those problems are with. Sometimes we build intellectual constructs around emotional issues. And I'm not saying there are not real intellectual things we need to wrestle with with the faith. I'm not saying that if you struggle with doubts about things in the, in the scriptures, that it has to, it's, it's because you have some sort of ill relationship with someone. But sometimes we build these constructs around an emotional argument. We can build up self-justification that we tell ourselves that we're the ones in the right. We can busy ourselves and just avoid and distract ourselves from the real problems we have in front of us. In verses six through 12, we see David's plan begin to unfold of how he's going to address Saul. He, uh, he and Abimelech and Abishai get together and David and Abishai go down into the camp of Saul. They go by night and amazingly, as they go, no one sees them. Verse 12 says that the Lord had given them a deep sleep to keep them from waking up. I imagine, I remember being a little kid and my mom had like, like sonars, like she, she could hear and feel every vibration in the house. And so I would turn the TV up to like volume level one to watch sports center when I was about nine years old. And I could hear my mom from across the house say, turn off the TV and go to bed. I have no clue how she heard that. I, I kind of prayed that she would be given a deep sleep from the Lord so I could watch Sports Center, but I, I was not given that. David was given that with the army uh, and with Saul. The Lord gives him favor. He worked on his behalf to bring about his will in order to protect David. And he did this throughout David's life in order to establish David as the king over Israel because he had a purpose for him. And sometimes the Lord works through our skill. He works through our abilities like he did with David in a well-placed stone that, that hit Goliath. And sometimes he does it through his divine protection, but the Lord always is working on our behalf for his glory and our good. Well, in the middle of this, Abishai sees his opportunity. He sees an opportunity to end this, to to squash the beef, to finally be done with all of this. And he sees Saul lying there with his spear right by his head. And he's kind of bragging. He's like, look, one shot. All I need is one shot. He won't even cry out. This whole thing will be over. And he even kind of baptizes this in God's will. He says, the Lord has delivered him into your hands. See, when others wrong us, we have innumerable voices telling us to just end people. You're justified to come back in anger. Send that text. It doesn't matter what your tone was like. You can cut that person off. You can cancel them. You don't have to extend or show any mercy. And oftentimes that even gets baptized in God's will. But David refuses to do that. Verse nine, it says that the reason he would not do this is because he would not destroy him. It's talking about Saul, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? 
David uses similar language in verse 11 and in verse 23, talking about Saul, this person who's anointed, who's set aside, who's special. And that's important for us to understand because David did not show mercy to Saul because of his actions, but because of his anointing. He didn't show, he didn't show mercy because Saul's actions deserved it, but because he was set aside and he was someone who was special in the sight of God. It's undeserved favor. It's compassion and action and showing restraint. And so in the same vein, we are to show mercy to other people when they hurt us, when they sin against us, not because their actions deserve it, because it's another person made in the image of God, particularly within the church. Listen, when you get sinners together, and listen, all of us are sinners, we are going to hurt one another. It's going to require us to repent of sin. It's going to require us to show mercy and forbearance with one another. And that's what it, partly what it means to live out a gospel culture, that we'd love and treat each other in light of the forgiveness that we've received through Jesus. See, that's how we often want others to treat us. We want them to be slow to anger. But how often do we give that same treatment to others? How often do we show mercy? Secondly, we see what mercy allows. What mercy allows is it allows room and opportunity for forgiveness. It creates a distance and a room from the situation in order to offer forgiveness. See, mercy allows this by calling us to trust in delayed justice. In verse 10, we see this with David, that David believes that Saul will one day face the consequences of his sin. He will one day face this. He says in verse 10, uh, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. He's gonna face it. Our sins have consequences. Even if you are forgiven by Jesus, it doesn't mean that your choices don't have repercussions sometimes lifelong repercussions. And Saul is going to face this. But what David does, instead of giving Saul his due justice, he disarms Saul, literally disarms Saul and removes his weapons of war because mercy is disarming. He he makes room for forgiveness by saying, I'm not gonna punish you, but we do need to deal with what happened. And so David is wise. He, he creates some physical distance in verse 13. He's, we see that he goes far off on top of a hill. He, he's not rushing back in because forgiveness is different than trust. And the reason it creates distance is because Tim Keller says that Saul is a fool. This is how you deal with a fool. You're not dealing with a person who's being rational. A fool, when we think of the word fool, we think of someone, it's like an insult, calling them a moron. In the Bible, it's someone who's willfully blind or in denial about their culpability. You see, this is also not a call to being passive either. David is, is appropriately aggressive. He, and so mercy provides room for forgiveness through telling the truth. He doesn't downplay Saul's sin. He doesn't, um, he, he doesn't do so in a way, but he does, also does a, in a way that he avoids seeking revenge. Because Saul is a fool, because he can't see rightly, David wants him to see his error and be able to see the circumstances rightly, creating space for forgiveness to happen. 
And in verses 18 through 20, David lays this out and he talks about, he says, look, he even leaves the possibility kind of tongue in cheek that this could be his fault. He said, maybe I did something wrong and, and I need to make it, make it right. I'll make an offering. But if others are stirring up division between us, let's deal with that. Why are you pursuing me like, like a flea or like, or like a, a single flea or, like, or one who hunts a partridge in the mountain? He says that the, what you're seeking doesn't match what I possibly could have done. And it, and it works. David's mercy softens Saul. It softens Saul toward him. In verse 17, we see that his tone towards David softens for a moment. He calls him my son. And in verse 21, Saul even repents. But this is how we typically offer forgiveness. See, David offered forgiveness before Saul ever felt sorry about it. But the way that you and I often offer forgiveness is that we'll say, you know what? I'll forgive you if you're really sorry. I'll forgive you when you make the relationship right as if reconciliation precedes forgiveness. But forgiveness biblically is the decision to forego or absorb a debt. It means I'm going to forgive that debt. I'm going to bear the weight and the cost of that. And when we have relational strife between us, relational brokenness, relational sin, there is a cost of pain. And so forgiveness is saying, it's not saying, you know, I'm going to make sure that we get everything back to zero and then we're going to be okay. It's saying, I'm going to choose to absorb the debt so we can be okay. My uncle, uh, I have my family's Italian. My uncle looks very Italian. Like he is short, stocky, very dark skinned. And, uh, and he looks like he could be in the mafia. And so he was working doing sales for, uh, for a farm supply company in Birmingham. And he goes into this company to, to collect on the bill for the farm supply company. And he's wearing a very nice suit. He walks in and he says, hey, I'm here to collect on the bill. Well, the gentleman reaches underneath the counter, pulls out a briefcase and starts counting out physical cash. And my uncle said, wait, wait, wait a minute, you can, you can just pay with a check. And the man said, well, who, wait, where are you from? He said, I'm with Fuller Supply Company. And he just kind of slowly puts the briefcase underneath the counter and writes him a check. He was afraid of the relationship souring if he did not make it right. Forgiveness is a commitment to continue to extend mercy to not give what you deserve, to not put the relationship on replay and say, you know what, you remember back on you know, Sunday, May 25th, um, you did X, Y, and Z. It's saying, no, mercy provides the opportunity for forgiveness to happen. And what it does in doing so in offering forgiveness is it hopes for reconciliation. It hopes for reconciliation because forgiveness is being made right legally. Reconciliation is being made right relationally. Mercy, what it hopes for is reconciliation. And so I want to take that and I want to apply that first to our relationship with God. We have been reconciled to God through Christ. How? How have we been reconciled to God? Because God showed us mercy. Because God chose not to give us the just punishment for our sin. 
What, what should happen if we're thinking about things being just and right and, and justice happening when it should happen is the moment that you and I sin, we would be removed from the earth and be punished. But out of a merciful heart, God graciously works to forgive us. And to forgive us, he has to pay our debt. It has to be absorbed. So how is it absorbed? Through Christ. Colossians 1 says it came through Jesus's body through his death. And in Ephesians 2, it says this happened at the cross. This is what the cross accomplished. The Christ absorbs all of your sin, your, all the debt that you owed. He bears it and he pays it. The punishment for it is poured out on him. All your mistakes, all your sins, all your rebellion is poured out on Christ. Not to make it possible for you to be forgiven, but to actually forgive you. Not waiting for you to feel sorry, but while you were still yet a sinner, Christ dying for you. But here's where reconciliation comes in, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of mercy. Is reconciliation is the application of forgiveness. It's trusting that the debt really is paid. And what happens is it changes the nature of the relationship. No longer is it, is it debtor and, and, and debty. It, it is, there's a change in the relationship. And what's the natural response to your debt being paid? It's gratitude, but it's also living in a new way. So let's say that you are in crazy debt. And if you went to college and grad school and all that, you, you can understand this. Uh, someone comes along and they say, you know what? I'm going to pay off all of your debt every dime. You just tell me the amount, I'll write the check. What's the best way to show gratitude? Obviously, it is to praise that person for being so generous, but also it's to learn to live in a way where you don't put yourself back in debt, to live, create new patterns where you live out of the freedom that you've now been given. And as you follow Christ, all of your sin, all of your debt, all of, all of that has been paid for past, present, and future. And so we, we would think that because we have such a great salvation that once we come to faith in Jesus, we would, never sin, we would never sin again. But what happens like 15 seconds after you come to faith in Christ? We sin. We, we continue to sin. And so when we sin though, do we go back into debt like we were before our, this relationship's been made new? No. You look and you see that Jesus is still merciful. And he paid for that sin too. And the longer you go and the more mature you become as a Christian, what you realize is that you don't actually become less sinful. You just see how deep the rabbit hole of your sin actually goes. And you say, man, I am that sinful. I am that messed up. I do and think things that are contrary to God and his will. But what you continue to see is that he is that merciful and that he is that forgiving. And what happens is that the work of the cross, the work of reconciliation looms larger and larger and larger in your life. And you're able to begin to peel back the layers of sin, the layers of brokenness in your life. And the hope that comes from reconciliation leads to greater and new forgiveness. Not forgiveness where your sin's being paid again, but the healing of your heart to see the power of sin removed from your life. Deep wounds take time to unpack. They take time for us, but it starts with mercy and forgiveness to settle the account. You know, over the years, like my dad and I did not have a great relationship. 
And it wasn't until my late 20s that I actually forgave my father, where I said, Dad, I forgive you. Now, it doesn't undo all the things that he did. It didn't mean that we were just immediately like buddy-buddy, but it provided the grounds for reconciliation to occur. And what began to happen is we would peel back layer after layer after layer of hurt and pain and suffering and brokenness. If you're in that type of relationship or you experience those type of deep wounds, don't grow weary because it just takes time. But we're not always guaranteed that an earthly relationship is going to be made whole. We see that with Saul and David. It's never made completely whole. So what do you do? You hope for it. You long for it. You groan for it. I think on some of the unresolved broken relationships that I've experienced and it breaks my heart. But what you do is you do all that you can. You extend mercy, you offer forgiveness. Sometimes you ask for it and you hope for reconciliation. What do you do when you've been hurt and sinned against over and over and over again? With David and Saul, we've been here before. The trust is broken. It would be foolish for for David to just run back into right relationship with Saul and pretend like none of these things were happening or that Saul wanted to kill him. And if you've experienced pain like this where there's the potential of physical harm or extreme emotional abuse, it wouldn't be wise for you to jump back in like everything's fine. We're going through a process right now called Becoming a Caring Church, where we're learning how to create systems and policies in a culture where we care for those who have been abused physically and sexually. And we try to create a space as a church where we protect the most vulnerable. And that's one of the things we we, we would tell people, you don't run right back in, but you can still extend mercy and forgiveness. We see the brokenness of this relationship that's never going to be completely put back together with Saul Verse 17, he refers to David as son. And David doesn't fall for it because because he's not treating David like a son at best. And at worst, he's manipulating David. Verse 21, he does repent, but we see later on that this is kind of an empty promise. Verse 23, he flatters David with his words. And so David with wise boundaries returns the spear via a servant in verse 22. There's this feeling of it not being resolved because David and Saul after this never see each other again. And in verse 27, verse one, David says that he knows that one day he would perish at the hand of Saul if he gave him the opportunity. But he didn't stop showing him mercy and he didn't stop extending forgiveness. He hoped in a God who will make all things right. So what gives David and us the power to extend mercy and forgiveness again and again? Lastly, we need to see where mercy comes from. Verses 23 and 24, we see that that David shows mercy again and he forgives Saul again because he understood the kindness and the patience of God toward him. The mercy of God allows us to love and forgive other people, even those who would count themselves our enemy. It's interesting that the two Psalms in the Bible that are attributed to David and his time in hiding in a cave, both, uh, both of them start out like this, be merciful to me, O God, 
And with my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. Those who extend mercy understand that they have received mercy. Jesus does say in Luke 6, this allows us to love our enemies. He says, but I say to you, starting in verse 27, but I say to you who here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from, who, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And reward, your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. See, our mercy has to be fueled by a greater mercy. Or as John Piper says, mercy flowing out from us must be rooted in mercy. A lifestyle of mercy is the lifestyle that will best display that God is a merciful God. God's kindness or his mercy leads us to repentance. Jesus, like David, showed mercy not giving us what we deserve, forgiving our sins by paying for them on the cross through his death in order to reconcile us to God. And so my question for you is, do you want to be a merciful person? Well, in order to be a merciful person, you have to receive the mercy of Jesus. And, and when you do, when you receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers you through the cross, the cross and its work are applied to you and you are reconciled to God. And this happens through simple trust and faith, simply surrendering your life to Christ. What's your next step? What relationships are broken in your life? Who might you need to show mercy to? Who might you need to go and ask for forgiveness? Let us show mercy because our God is a merciful God. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.